Good morning, if you can find your seats. If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 2. Again, that's Genesis chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 18 this morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whether the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to, the, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I pray, Lord, that you will be with us this morning, God. I pray, Lord, that you would be with our church, Lord, that you would be with the families and marriages, Lord, that are represented by this church, Lord. That, God, in a real sense, we are uh, caught up in a spiritual warfare, Lord. Uh, And we see Satan on the attack, Lord, when it comes to marriages within our culture, Lord. But, God, I would pray that you would protect the marriages, Lord, within our church. That we would honor the the covenant, Lord, that we vowed on our wedding days, Lord. That we would be faithful, understanding that marriage is much larger than us and our relationship and our happiness, Lord, but that it represents something so much bigger than us. God, I pray that you're with us this morning as we talk about this subject. In your son's name we pray, amen. You might be wondering uh, this morning why we're in the book of X or Genesis and um, why we are away from Philippians again. Well, let me uh, kind of tell you how we got here this morning. Uh, two weeks ago, we had our annual elders retreat uh, where we spend, uh, sometimes we do two whole days, sometimes we do a day. This time we, we had really almost two whole days that we were together planning, praying, and really talking about the health of the church, uh, Country Oaks in particular. And at this retreat, uh, there was a lot of discussion about marriage. Every elder uh, seemed to agree, felt, and, and really feels that it seems like uh, Satan is on attack right now. Attacking marriages, not just culturally, not just in our society, not just with uh, the transgender mu- movement and, and what we see uh, in the news, but, but also in the church. And when I say in the church, I mean our church. Uh, we have seen several families really struggling and a number of marriages struggling uh, over the last, we'll say, year. And 
uh, I've been asked, uh, or I asked the other pastors, um, or I've asked other pastors in Tehachapi, but not just in Tehachapi, if they've been seeing kind of a similar thing, and it seems like uh, there has been uh, across the board. Uh, and they've been seeing similar struggles, marriage just uh, struggling. Uh, it seems like, in other words, there's a war going on right now against the covenant of marriage. And as a pastor, it has been challenging and even discouraging at points. So the question I ask myself is, what do you do when you know you're at war? Well, you pick up your armor, you pick up your weapon, and you join the battle. And God has given us one weapon to use in spiritual warfare, and that's the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. So we decided at the retreat as an elder board that we're going to pick up the sword and fight. Therefore, we are going to put a pause on the current sermon series, and today we're going to start a four-part sermon series, it might be five, depending on where we go, on marriage and what the Bible says about marriage. Listen, part of uh, the calling of the pastor is to be aware of the needs of the congregation and shepherding them through it, protecting the flock. Therefore, we felt like uh, this was such an urgent issue right now that we needed to do something. Um, So we didn't wait. Last weekend, we, it's one week later, we're going to start this series on marriage. And before we get started, I wanted to give you um, some warnings. Uh, first, we're going to start this sermon series with some deep theology of marriage and on marriage, and then move to more practical uh, issues or application. Um, and, and here's why. If we don't start with the deep theology that really is foundational to the marriage covenant, you won't understand just how weighty your marriage is, your marriage covenant is. So we're going to start with some deep theology. The second thing I want to uh, say is um, marriage affects the whole church. It affects the whole church. It affects the unity of the church. It affects the health of the church. It affects our witness as a church to the culture Therefore, it affects everyone, everyone. Meaning, if you are single, a widower, or divorced this morning, and you're going to be listening through these sermon series, they're still for you. Because the the marriages within this church will affect you. So pay attention, be engaged, and do what you can to help promote healthy marriages here at COBC, even if that's just prayer. But if you're single or or divorced or a widower and you're part of a small group, be engaged in the discussions that are happening. Be a part of it. This leads me just to a third warning before we get started, and this is the one I really want to kind of get across. Uh, My heart's heavy here. Uh, And so because I'm talking about marriage, and this is obviously such a personal subject even if it's not your marriage maybe it's your parents marriage that that just has some deep root personal issues within your life because i'm talking about marriage and such a personal subject such a sensitive subject uh, for many um, a lot of you may feel very hopeless right now 
Again, maybe divorced, maybe uh, married to an unbeliever, maybe barely holding on to the relationship you have right now. I want to start by saying this, and hopefully I will remember to continue to point us back to this throughout the next few weeks, that there's grace. There is grace. And God can redeem any situation you are in. You need to just trust him, follow him, be faithful to to whatever situation you find yourself in this morning. So those are my three warnings. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 through 2, and I titled this sermon, Marriage According to Genesis. Marriage According to Genesis. And I want to look at five truths that Genesis teaches us about marriage. Uh, There's way more than five. In fact, I wrote out this sermon. I had, I don't know, 40-something pages, and I got rid of a lot of the truths because I wanted to focus on a, a couple um, and I don't want to be here till next service. So, um, so we have five truths uh, Genesis teaches us about marriage. The first truth is this. Genesis teaches us that marriage is foundational to the family. That marriage is foundational to the family. If you would, turn to Genesis 1, verse 27. Verse 27 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, have children. Now, I want to be clear, uh, just right off the bat, procreation is not the only purpose of marriage. But at the same time, children are one of the main purposes of marriage. Malachi 2.15 says this, Did he not make them one? That's Genesis. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Think about that. The command, be fruitful and multiply, would have been impossible without what came just before it in the book of Genesis, the creation of man and woman. For Adam to have a family, he needed Eve. The marriage relationship, one man, one woman, nothing else is marriage, one man, one woman. The marriage relationship is foundational to the family. Therefore, the attack on marriage is really an attack on the family. It's an attack on the family. So think about this. There is no children in Genesis 1 through 3. All you have is Adam and Eve. Children don't come into the picture until chapter 4. This teaches us that the, the covenant one flesh relationship between Adam and Eve came first. Not just chronologically, but in priority. The marriage relationship is the most important relationship within the family. I've said this a number of times, and, and I'll keep saying it. Uh, as we see our, our culture and society and our country just kind of crumble. If you want to destroy society, attack the family. If you want to destroy the family, attack marriages. 
And the devil knows this. He knows this. This is why the devil attacked Adam and Eve's relationship in Genesis 3. And think about it. The devil didn't just attack Adam and Eve's relationship with God. He also went after their relationship with each other. Turn to Genesis 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, verse 6 says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. They sinned. This is the original sin, the first sin that we see in Scripture, Genesis 3. They sinned. Verse 7, what happens right after that? Then the eyes of both were open, and that they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, why did they uh, want to cover up their nakedness? Because for the first time in their lives, they felt shame. They felt guilt because they were truly guilty, and therefore they felt shame. But here's my question. Who were they covering their nakedness from? They, they haven't hid from God yet. God is omnipresent, but we see him, Adam, hide from God when he, he hears God coming in the, in the uh, garden. So who are they covering their nakedness from at this point? Each other. I mean, think about that. Their, their guilt and shame created a barrier, an obstacle within their marriage. They are now hiding things from each other. And this keeps going. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten uh, of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. We see Adam blaming the woman the same person, just a chapter earlier, he was so excited and happy and joy-filled to meet because he was lonely. Now after sin, he's blaming her for everything. Genesis 3 is where all the trouble within relationships starts. Conflict, blame-shifting, frustration, lying, hiding, Again, at this point, there, there are no children in the story, in the crea creation narrative. But, but here's my question. Where did this conflict lead? Where did this sin lead? Well, in chapter 4, Adam and Eve has two boys, Cain and Abel, and one of them ends up murdering the other. And what's interesting about Genesis chapter 4 is this. The construction in the Hebrew parallels Genesis chapter 3. 
And I think Moses does this on purpose. In other words, the sins of Adam and Eve affected their children. And because it was Adam and Eve, it affected mankind and every children born to them ever since. The devil knew if he could destroy Adam and Eve's relationship, he can get to the family. And again, because it's Adam and Eve, humanity itself. Therefore, let me say this. If you love your children, if you want to be a good parent, work on your marriage. If your marriage is struggling, get help now for the sake of your family. The relationship between mom and dad is foundational. It brings stability. It needs to be a priority within the family. Divorce and infidelity, fighting domestic violence will affect not just your marriage, but the entire family. The ripple effects of a broken marriage are large. They're large. I mean, they reach even outside of the family, let me tell you. That's because the marriage covenant is that important. That important. Now, before I move on, I'm just going to say this again. Because I look out and I know of a lot of broken families here. There's grace. There's grace. I want to make sure I point that out because I know many of you are single parents. I also know many of you come from broken homes. There's grace. God is a God we see throughout Scripture and we see just in life. He's a God who redeems the broken. And God can redeem your situation, so keep trusting in him. Be faithful as a mom or a dad. Do not be discouraged. But at the same time, I want to make this clear, just how important the marriage covenant is to the family. Now think about this. Within the creation narrative, the narrative that tells us how we got here, Genesis 1 through 3, within the creation narrative, there's only three characters, three main ones at least. You have God, you have Adam, and you have Eve. Meaning there are only two relationships that are foundational enough to make it into the creation narrative. Man's relationship with God and man's relationship with the woman. Our relationship with God and the marriage relationship. They are the two most foundational, fundamental relationships in all of humanity. Therefore, it's extremely important. This leads me to the second truth that Genesis teaches us. Uh, It teaches us that the man and the woman are meant to complement each other. The man and the woman are meant to complement each other. Now that we know that marriage is a priority, we see this in Genesis, it's a priority in the creation narrative, there's something 
I want to point out something that I think is very interesting when you just kind of go through the creation narrative. That there's a complementarian nature to creation itself. Let me just show you what I mean. Look at Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Genesis 1.1 1, 1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice the pairing there, the heavens and the earth. They're not the same thing, but they're related. It would be weird if Genesis 1 said this, and God created the heavens and plants. Think about that. Heavens and plants are not that closely related. But the heavens and the earth are closely related. Not the same, but instead they complement each other. They even help define each other. How do you know what the heavens are if you don't know what earth is? How do you know what the earth is if you don't know what the heavens are? And this complementarian nature of creation keeps going. Look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Again, we see pairings. Light, darkness, day, night, evening, morning. They all complement each other. Just think of day and night. They're not the same thing, day and night, but they're related. They go together. They help define each other but they're not interchangeable. They're different. Instead, they complement each other. Look at verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. You have land and seas Different, not interchangeable, but related. They complement each other. And this keeps going. In verse 16 through 19, you have the sun and the moon. You also have plants and the animals. But then you get to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the creation of man, the pinnacle of God's creation. And listen, there's no pairing. There's no companion. There's nothing that complements man. And listen to what God says about this. Genesis 2 verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. For the first time in the creation narrative, we hear God say, it is not good. Adam needs a companion. Therefore, God creates the woman, man and woman, a pair, a couple, related, similar, both humans, but not the same. That's important. Not interchangeable, but instead they complement each other, just like the rest of creation. Turn to Genesis 2, verse 20. Look at verse 20. 
It says this, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, unlike the other living creatures at this point, Eve was not made from the dust. Instead, she was made from the flesh of man, a rib, which indicates two things, two very important things. The woman is like man. Made from his flesh, there's a sameness. Yet, she's also different from man. She was made differently than Adam was made. I mean, think about it. Adam delights in Eve because she's not another animal. Animals are too different. But at the same time, she's not another man. She's not the same as Adam. She was exactly what Adam needed, a suitable helper helper equal, but at the same time different. Again, she perfectly complimented Adam. And this leads to the third truth. Genesis teaches us that marriage is a one flesh union between a man and a woman. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about it, just how, how God has designed the sexual union. The man and the woman just fit together. They complement each other. Not just emotionally, not just spiritually, not just in their roles, but even physically. It's beautiful. Especially when you consider how a woman was made. She was made from the flesh of a man. Meaning the sexual union is more than a union. It's a reunion. Adam was one flesh before Eve. God took a rib from him. Therefore, he becomes one flesh again when when he's unified with her in sex, in physical intimacy. Look at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. One flesh. It's a reunion. And that's beautiful. Sex is meant to be a physical expression of the deeply personal communion between the marriage partners. One woman, one man, become one flesh. And this is why sexual immorality and Adultery and is such a big deal. Hebrews 13.4 simply says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. Listen, physical intimacy was created to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage. Again, one man, one woman. 
lifelong partners in the covenant of marriage, sex outside of this is a sin. And it's not just a sin, it's a destructive sin. I'm sure most of you have heard the fireplace analogy. I just think it's a really good analogy. A fire in a fireplace is great, right? It keeps the room warm. It produces a soothing white noise. It sets a great atmosphere. But if you take that fire outside of its proper place, the fireplace, it's not good. It's destructive. You don't want fire in the kitchen. You don't want the garage to be on fire only in the fireplace. Well, in a similar way, sex in its proper place in marriage is great. It's healthy. It's a gift. But sex outside of its proper place, just like fire, is destructive. That's why Proverbs 6, 27 says this. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. So again, the fireplace analogy is just a great analogy. But I've been thinking about this analogy, and I actually think a better analogy is a wood-burning stove. And here's why. If you take fire outside of its proper place, meaning outside of a wood-burning stove, it will burn hot for a short time, but it will also burn down the entire house and destroy everything. But there's something else about a wood-burning stove that I just think relates to physical intimacy within marriage. I, I have had two wood-burning stoves in two different houses, um, and I've learned that they can be a little fickle at times, there's like a special relationship between a man and his wood-burning stove. Like, you just got to <laughs> learn that wood-burning stove. Right? I mean, if you can get that stove burning hot, it'll heat up that whole house, and it's great. But it takes a lot of effort to get to that point, right? You got to chop wood, you got to stack wood, you have to have the right type of wood, you have to start the fire with kindling and you have to have the right airflow and you have to learn all these things. It takes time to learn these things. But if you do everything right or better yet, if you put the right effort into it, after a while you can get that stove just burning, blazing hot. Well, in a similar way, physical intimacy within marriage takes effort. For it to burn hot, you have to put effort into your relational intimacy, into your spiritual intimacy. You have to put effort into to the care and love you have for your spouse before physical intimacy will ever burn hot. Therefore, physical intimacy needs to be kept in its proper place within the one flesh covenant relationship of marriage but even within marriage, effort needs to be put into the relationship to keep the passion and romance burning hot. This brings me to a fourth truth we see in Genesis. Marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant 
When you get married, you are making a covenant to be faithful for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live. Marriage is a covenant before God. It is not a contract. There's a major difference between a covenant and a contract. Marriage is not a contract. It doesn't say, if you do this, then I will do this. Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a promise between two parties who are being joined together into a binding relationship. It's a relationship that is personal and relational, but at the same time, and we need to understand this, it's public and even legally binding. It's a promise with covenant stipulations. And again, it's done publicly on purpose. Because the the marriage covenant is not just a private arrangement between two people. There's a social aspect to it. As two people become one, they are starting a new family. And that affects society. It doesn't just affect the two people. It affects the extended family. It affects parents. It affects future kids. It affects church relationships. It affects friendships. It's a wide-ranging effect that goes far beyond the two entering into the covenant of marriage. We are just so self-centered that we think marriage is just about us. It's not. I've been around too many divorces and seen the ripple effects of the sin It hurts way more people than just the married couple. It's why marriage ceremonies are done publicly, not behind closed doors. It's a commitment to love each other from that point on till death separates them. And it's a commitment that finds its origin in Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And then he, God, brought her to the man. Now, what's that sound like? God makes Eve, she, she is his creation. God made her personally and loves her deeply and then brings her to Adam. What's that sound like? A wedding. It sounds like a wedding. The father brings the bride to the groom. And look at verse 23. Then the man said... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This was written poetically. That's why it is uh, 
put in a different kind of way in your scripture. There's excitement in Adam's voice, in other words, when God brings Eve to him. He starts to sing. It's a similar joy that you see when a a groom is standing watching his bride walk down the aisle. Listen to verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now there's three things in verse 24 that really illustrates the marriage covenant. Three legs, I would say, that the marriage covenant stands on. The first leg is this. A man shall leave his father and his mother. In other words, the the covenant, the marriage covenant is an establishment of a new family unit. It's why there's a, a name change at the wedding ceremony. The bride takes on the name of the groom. It's done publicly because it changes the fabric of society. A whole new family was just created on a a wedding day. And from that point on, there should be no question that this particular man has left his father and mother and now is joined with his bride. father walks the bride down the aisle and he hands her off to the groom and then guess what he does he sits down because he's not a part of it anymore a new family is starting the second thing we see the second leg the marriage covenant is The second part of the verse, it says this, a man shall hold fast to his wife. Now, the King James says cleave unto his wife. The word translated cleave, the NASB translates it joined or hold fast. It's a covenant faithfulness word. It's a declaration of faithfulness within the covenant. Faithfulness to the the vows made on the wedding day. Faithfulness to to live in a covenant before the Lord as a calling. Faithfulness to each other within the relationship. The covenant relationship is a vow of faithfulness. And finally, thirdly, they shall become one flesh. The covenant union is a personal union of a man and a woman which is expressed and deepened through physical intimacy. And I want to be clear, one flesh is not just physical intimacy, but instead it refers to a oneness that gradually grows more and more over time that is expressed in physical intimacy. Therefore, marriage probably more than anything else in Genesis we see is a covenantal relationship. It's extremely important. This brings me to the last truth that uh, Genesis teaches us. It teaches us that marriage is meant to be a relationship of deep intimacy, love, and vulnerability. 
Again, Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now verse 25 is not sexual. Adam and Eve's nakedness had more to do with their relationship. That's why we see the we're not ashamed added on to it. There was no, nothing in between this relationship. There, there was an openness, a, a unity, not masked by guilt, not hampered by shame. A oneness that Adam and Eve enjoyed before sin entered into the world. I mean, think about that for a second. I mean, isn't that just beautiful? They were naked and not ashamed. Not just physically, spiritually, relationally. They were exposed to one another, but, but they were not ashamed because they had nothing to be ashamed about. Let me ask a question. What happened right after Adam and Eve sinned? We already answered this. What did they do? The very first thing. They clothed themselves. Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That openness, that intimacy that, that they once experienced is now tainted, it's, it's skewed because of shame and guilt. And this has been true for mankind ever since. Not only do we now wear clothes, but because of sin, we are afraid to expose who we truly are to one another. We hold our cards close, in other words. We hide behind facades and fakeness. We are terrified that people will find out our secrets. Before sin, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were completely exposed to one another and vulnerable because they had nothing to hide. I mean, that's beautiful. It's beautiful, but at the same time, it's a little discouraging, isn't it? We've just lost so much because of sin that closeness, that openness, that deep relational intimacy, being completely exposed to one another and unashamed, completely vulnerable with nothing to hide. Mankind has lost so much because of sin and relationships have struggled ever since. But here's the good news. Because of the gospel, Because of the gospel, just like Adam and Eve, you can be naked, exposed, vulnerable, completely open with your spouse and not be ashamed. Not because you're you're such a great person, not, not because you are sinless or innocent like Adam and Eve, but instead because your guilt and shame have been dealt with on the cross. 
Listen, the, the gospel can radically change your marriage. Jesus came, he, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross for your sins, and whoever trusts in him, whoever believes in him, will receive grace and will be forgiven. And a marriage centered on the gospel is a marriage based on forgiveness and grace. So this is where I want to end today. Because there is so much hope in the gospel. Genesis teaches us at least five things, and it teaches us more than five. But at least five things about marriage. Marriage is foundational to the family. Within marriage, the man and the woman are, are meant to complement each other. Marriage is a one flesh union between a man and a woman. Marriage is a covenant. And finally, marriage is meant to be a relationship of deep intimacy, love, and vulnerability. You know, at this point, Uh, just as a pastor, I've done a lot of premarital counseling. I, in the 20s, maybe 30s, uh, just a lot. And, and I always tell couples that, that courting and dating, whatever you want to call it, it's kind of like going to a used car sales lot. <laughs> just think about it for a second. It's like the used car salesman who doesn't want you to know what's under the hood. All the faults of the car, all the things that are wrong with it. This is true in dating. It's just human nature. I don't care how much you try to expose yourself to that person. Your human sinful nature will just hide things. It hides who we truly are. And I tell couples, if you think you know that person you're engaged to, guess what? You're going to know them much better after 10 years of marriage. This is why the first year of marriage is often so hard. It's the other thing I warned the couple. The first year is difficult, often. Because the, the sins and the faults of both spouses start to come to the surface you just can't hide them anymore because you're doing life together. That's why I like the book, When Sinners Say I Do. I mean, that's such a great title. When Sinners Say I Do. You married a sinner. And guess what? They married a sinner too. <laughs> and sometime in the first year or second year, you start to think, man, this is not the person I thought I married. But here's the thing that I've learned after 14 years of marriage. <clears throat> and this is where I try to encourage couples in premarital counseling. Sarah knows my faults. She knows my past sins, the baggage I brought into the marriage. She knows the sins I struggle with to this very day. At times, she has seen me at my worst. I'd be absolutely embarrassed if you guys have seen me at my worst. But she's seen it. It's all been exposed to her because I can't hide it from her. I live with her. <laughs> I do life with her. We parent together. But guess what? She loves me anyways. 
After 14 years, I am confident that she loves me and will love me, sometimes despite me. And listen, I have learned that that really is true love. That's a deep love that goes beyond the shallow infatuation of people that are dating. True, faithful, covenantal love will get you to the point that you can be naked in front of your spouse and not be ashamed. Not because your sins aren't shameful, but instead because you are forgiven. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of a gospel-centered marriage. And listen, I know this because I've seen it. Any marriage can get to this place. It may take some time. It may take some work and effort. You may have to earn trust back because of some kind of damaging sin within the marriage relationship. But if both couples are committed to each other and, and are trusting in the gospel meaning freely offering grace and forgiveness because they know they've been forgiven so much. You can get to the place of deep relational intimacy and vulnerability. But only through the grace and forgiveness found in the gospel. The gospel, the gospel is the key to a healthy God-honoring marriage. And that's where we'll pick up next week. God, our Father, Lord. God, again, this is such a heavy topic because it's so personal and there's so many wounds that we have, Lord, maybe from our parents, maybe from our grandparents, maybe from our own marriage. That's such a, a, an important relationship, the marriage covenant, Lord. God, I pray for the marriages that are struggling right now, Lord, that they uh, would turn to you and your grace, Lord, and if they haven't reached out for help, Lord, that they would know how important their relationship is, that it's much bigger than the individuals. It's much bigger than them as a couple, them as a, a married couple, Lord, that they would understand the weightiness of their covenant, Lord, and that they would reach out for help before it's too late, Lord. I pray for those that, that have been hurt, Lord, that may be single or divorced and, and sitting in here and feel hopeless, Lord, that they would know that it's the same hope, Lord. It's the same gospel. It's the same God that they worship, Lord. That if they trust you and follow you and are just faithful in what they're called to do in their situation, Lord, that there is joy on the other side. God, give them that courage. God, I pray that you would protect the marriages in this church. <clears throat> God, that you would bring unity to this church by making sure that the most fundamental and foundational relationships are unified, the marriage relationships, God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat>